High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I am your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. On each episode, our experts will answer a question from you, our listeners. Friends, fentanyl is killing over 30,000 people a year. Only a few grains can cause someone to drop dead. People may think they're using cocaine, methamphetamine, pills of Xanax or Percocet, and not know they're exposed to a lethal drug. If you're around someone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. If you need a prescription for naloxone, you should have one. No questions asked. That is why I am offering a prescription to anyone who needs one. Come visit us on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, take a quiz, or download a free prescription for naloxone. We are now ready to start a fresh, new, healthy year, 2021. And with this new year comes, with great anticipation, our exciting weekly interesting, health-promoting podcast, High Truths on Drugs and Addiction. And what better way to start our new year and our High Truths podcast than with America's drug czar, the director of the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy, ONDCP. Director Jim Carroll has been serving as America's drug czar for President Trump. He's charged with directing drug policy across government that includes all aspects from prevention, treatment and recovery, and removing illegal drugs. Director Carroll was also my boss when he hired me to serve as the first chief medical officer for ONDCP. The show notes for this episode will include Director Carroll's bio and a brief overview of the ONDCP agency. Director Jim Carroll, welcome to High Truths. Dr. Lev, thank you so much for having me on. It's great to be back with you. I am so thankful to you for many reasons. I just want to start out with that. And I'm thankful to you for creating a chief medical position and hiring me to a dream job. And I'm thankful to you for reaching out to friends who've been impacted by drugs in a very personal and very generous way. Um, Thanking you for being on this program and most of all, and simply for being a wonderful, caring human being. Oh, Dr. Love, um, everything you said touches me. The, as I look back, um, clearly one of the highlights um, of my time here was recognizing the need for a chief medical officer and hiring you. Um, when we met in California, it was clear that you not only had the expertise, but you had the passion to help people, which is the most important thing. And so it was such an honor working with you, and it, but it's great to have you back out in the field, saving lives directly. Thank you. Um, So I thought we would start with telling our listeners, what is ONDCP and what do you do as a director? The the informal title um, is a little bit more well-known and of drugs are um, of the United States. And the real out or the reality is that um, I am the chief advisor to the president on any drug issues. And so, and the way that we're able to do that here at ONDCP is we oversee the 35, $36 billion that the federal government spends on this issue 
across 16, 17 federal departments and agencies, making sure that the way that they are spending their money, the way they are implementing their programs and setting policy is consistent across the government, as well as consistent with the best medical advice and the best evidence we have on this issue. And so we oversee not only the treatment money that comes from the federal government, but also prevention programs to make sure that we're not starting the next generation down a path that is so dangerous. And then of course, we also are looking at and overseeing the stopping of drugs coming into this country. So for example, for the DEA, the Drug Enforcement, um, we oversee their entire budget. Um, we oversee every dollar and all of the policy that they do there targeting the supply of drugs. And so we have a staff of about 100 people here who are all passionate and dedicated to this and across all those lines of efforts. And so it's really, it's been quite an honor to be here as the president's drugs are. And it's just been a great opportunity to meet so many people around the country and really around the world. That's great. And uh, you've, you've been in the office for about three years uh, leading ONDCP. What are some of the projects or encounters that you're most proud of? Well, in addition to hiring the first chief medical officer, um, the, um, I have to say one of the honors has really been meeting and working with the parents and survivors of people who have passed away from the disease of addiction, as well as meeting some of the people in recovery and meeting them, hearing from them, letting them know what we're doing, because we have been doing so much. Um, we have more money available than ever before for treatment and prevention, more money than any other president. Um, we have tackled this issue head on by putting dollars at the problem and making sure that we're bringing a consistent approach. And we've been able also to do a lot of remarkable things during COVID. Um, and while it wasn't something that we were, any of us were expecting, um, I really admire the way the government and in particular, um, the folks in my agency were able to respond very quickly and put into action some of the plans that we already had in place in the event of a national emergency. And so um, I've had the honor really of working across the entire spectrum and also just meeting some terrific men and women of law enforcement, especially in your neck of the woods along the Southwest border um, who are trying so hard um, to stop the flow of drugs coming into the United States. That's great. That was one of my favorite things too, is meeting the, the people. Um, and I would add also, Director Carroll, that you've, you've accomplished a lot uh, during that time. And I tell people that our prescription opioid epidemic is now over. We have less opioid prescriptions and, and less deaths from opioid prescriptions um, that exclude fentanyl ever in the history um, of declaring an, an opioid epidemic. So I'm, I'm, I'm proud of you for that and the agency as well. Well, that, that was one of the president's priorities. Um, by the end of his first term, we, um, he wanted a one-third reduction in the number of high-dose opioid prescriptions being written, and we've exceeded that. Um, we're um, in the mid-30s, I think 35 36% reduction. And so I'm very proud that we've been able to work with prescribers as well as patients um, so that they understand you know, when it's necessary to get a, an opioid and when it's not. And so, and also one of the things that I'm really proud of is working with my friend, the Surgeon General, Jerome Adams, 
on the advisories of carrying naloxone, naloxone prescriptions are up 405% from when um, we started four, four years ago. And so I, I really do think some of those things have really led to what was the first decline in three decades of the number of Americans dying of a drug overdose. The first time ever in 29 years, and that is a direct result of the work being done by the president and by the people here at ONDCP and across the government to try to make sure that we're treating patients fairly as well as educating them. And then of course, working so hard across all these issues. And so, you know, there's some um, definite highlights of uh, being here um, that I can look back and say, we accomplished some good things. And it's no secret that we live in a divided country before our election and after, and you work in the thick of it at the White House, answering to the president and the chief of staff. And how has politics affected your work at ONDCP? Dr. Lev, I am so blessed. Um, I am really in a position. It's not bipartisan, it's nonpartisan because there's no side on this issue. I work uh, very strongly with all sides, whether Democrats, Republicans, it doesn't matter. Um, it, I was really fortunate. I promised to do that um, when I was meeting with members of the Senate prior to my confirmation. I was unanimously confirmed because I promised everyone that I would work on this issue in a nonpartisan way. And the president has also. The president is desperate to make sure that he's saving lives. The first time I met with the president about taking this position, we talked about his brother, Fred, who died as a result of his addiction and the need to help people. Never once has politics come into play, whether it's for the president um, or for any member of ONDCP on this issue. We've been very fortunate to be able to rise above that and help save lives, and it doesn't matter who they are. Just like you do it in um, in, in emergency room, emergency department, when people brought in um, it doesn't matter their politics. It doesn't matter the color of their skin. It doesn't matter. You're there to help people. And so are we. And I definitely noticed that uh, working at the agency, you couldn't tell the politics of, of your, of the people working there. Um, have you had some tough moments? Yeah. Um, you know, obviously meeting and talking to some of the parents who have lost a child um, can be really tough in the fall. Um, I guess about two months ago, I met with a dozen parents in one setting who had lost a child to an overdose. Um, and when each one introduced themselves, they talked about their child. They talked about, you know, the what happened. Some of them, you know, were kids who had been um, battling addiction, you know, for years. And others were ones who had no idea, um, you know, that their child had an addiction. And then others, of course, were kids who had no idea what they were doing. Um, they didn't realize the dangers of taking a pill at a party, you know, or doing something like that. And they didn't realize something that you and I know, which is in this day and age, one pill can kill. Um, and that was really, in talking to those parents, it was one of the most touching um, things that I've done behind closed doors. But um, there was, um, there were a lot of tears um, shed by everyone in that room that day. And, you know, that was a really tough day, but it was such an honor to be able to meet with them, explain to them what we're doing um, and promise to work with them. And I've maintained um, communications with several of these parents um, and we talk 
um, and get their ideas about what to do differently. So, you know, those are some of the situations that, you know, I'll always look back on and, you know, remember fondly, but also it's a sad moment. There are the reasons that we do what we do. Um, yeah, absolutely. To that. You know, I hired a father here um, who had lost his son um, to an overdose. I hired a young man um, who lost his brother to an overdose because I think it's important to have those people here at the office in a career position that are going to continue to stay here um, because they can bring that real world experience and the passion to make sure that fewer and fewer um, you know, folks experience this pain. And so I, I think it's critical to have people here like you who have actually been out there, who actually understand what's happening in the world. Um, that's where how we're going to continue to make a difference in the years ahead. Great. And has COVID stopped or changed the work that ONDCP is doing? It, it certainly um, created new opportunities for us. And I think that you know, we can look back here on COVID and maybe there's a couple, you know, silver linings to the, a very dark cloud. What we did was we expanded um, telemedicine very early on as we realized that people were fearful um, of going into a clinical setting, as well as so many clinics um, being closed. And so um, we doubled the amount of telemedicine and telehealth that is available um, and making sure that people are getting coverage from that. It went from about 40% um, to 85% of people, you know, who are beginning recovery are able to access providers and care through telemedicine. We expanded the take-home doses um, of some of the medication-assisted drugs um, that help people with an addiction to an opioid. And so, we, you know, working there to make sure that it's easier for them to have their medication, easier for them to keep it um, close to them. And so those are some of the things that we've been able to do that I really think, you know, we're learning a lot from. Allowing physicians to cross state lines to prescribe medication again, um, especially, you know, for buprenorphine and some of these other drugs that help people are some of the things that I think we'll look at and realize that, um, they should probably stay put even after, thank God, what appears to be the COVID um, pandemic, hopefully coming to an end. I, I you know, COVID has been a, a dark spot for our nation. I, I love the idea of finding the, the bright uh, opportunities in that as well. And I remember being there when we were just, the job of ONDCP is cut the red tape, cut the government red tape, find a way of doing that. And, and the uh, all focus was was on cutting that tape. So that that was nice. Um, yeah. And, you know, we experienced that, as you might recall, at the very beginning of this, um, you know, with some of these treatment centers, um, the they were not distributing the PPE, um, which is so desperately needed. And so we found out that, um, you know, they weren't able, the workers weren't able to be protected and the patients weren't able to be protected. Um, and so we sent out that day, the day we heard it, um, an advisory, making sure that everyone understood that these are critical, you know, healthcare facilities that need to operate safely. And so, you know, putting out advisories on that is also something, you know, to make sure that people understand, um, you know, the importance of the care that they receive for addiction. Yeah. So the theme of high truths is to answer questions from our listeners. So for this episode with you, this special episode, I have three questions from three different people who asked about law enforcement, 
prevention and treatment, kind of like uh, following the theme of the national drug control uh, strategy. So can I ask you those three questions from the three different people? Of course, I'd love to. And the first one is someone you know, um, Director David King, a HIDA director for San Diego and Imperial County. So he has a law enforcement question. And his question is, how can states build on the overdose response strategy partnership with the Center of Disease Control and improve communication between public health and public safety? One of the things that I think is critical, and we've been doing this here, um, is making sure that they are actually integrated and making sure that our HIDAs, which are a phenomenal program, the high intensity drug trafficking areas, um, we're um, directly here from my agency at the White House. We send about $300 million out across the country for these task forces to make sure that they're combating the flow of drugs into their communities is actually putting healthcare um, prerogatives in what they do so that there's real-time data sharing um, between the healthcare community and the law enforcement to make sure that they understand exactly what is happening in their community. They can't be one step or two steps removed from what is actually happening in the communities. They need to know real-time what is going on. There's also a great benefit to the public health folks um, from being aware of the law enforcement side of this because they understand immediately, real time, about the new novel drugs that are coming into our country immediately. So they know the best way to sort of help care for those folks, treat those folks, and perhaps save their lives because they have the latest and greatest information. So embedding all of these people together is critical way to address this problem. We're not gonna arrest our way out of this problem. Um, we're not gonna just treat our way out and we're not gonna just prevent our way out. We have to do all three. And so that's why it's critical to combine those groups as soon as possible and as often as possible. I love that, breaking silos. Yes. Um, the next question is from Joe Eberstein. He's a prevention specialist with CCR, Center for Community Research, and his question is about marijuana. He states, there are, this is a billion-dollar industry promoting marijuana as medicine in addition to pushing it recreationally. What are your words of wisdom to the prevention community that is the David against Goliath in trying to protect America, especially our youth? Um, boy, that's a good way to put it in terms of David versus Goliath. It certainly does seem um, that um, the marijuana industry does have a lot of resources to throw at this issue. You know, I mentioned Jerome Adams, our great Surgeon General, and he put out advisories that I think sort of speak to the issue. I don't think people understand that there are dangers with marijuana and that people can overdose on marijuana. Some of the dangers that the Surgeon General talked about is the negative impact on the brain, the physical structure of the brain for people at age 25 and younger, that it can permanently alter um, their brain. And so that is a message that we work with the Surgeon General to put out. One of the other messages that he had to put out, and this is a result of a study that was done, um, was that we're seeing an increased use of marijuana by pregnant women. Um, and so the Surgeon General put out an advisory on that to protect the fetus um, from any physical harm that might be caused by the mother 
um, smoking or using, um, ingesting marijuana. What we've seen um, the messaging here is critical. And again, under this administration, we're spending more money on prevention than ever before. Um, we fund 800 drug-free community programs across the country, targeted at kids 18 and under. And this includes all the substances that they shouldn't be using. Not only, of course, the opioids, methamphetamine, which I know in California is a real issue, um, a rising issue there. Um, so not only is it opioids and pills you know, and methamphetamine, but it's also alcohol, tobacco, and marijuana. It's making sure that kids you know, get to an adult age have the full understanding of what's going on um, and make you know the choices um, for them that are in their own best interest. And so education here is key. As I said, you know we talked about one pill can kill, um, and that is certainly true these days. And we've got to keep spreading the message on that. That's one of the things that President Trump um, did um, here was we put out more and more campaigns, educational campaigns. And I'm sure um, that is something that will continue to happen here um, going in the direction that President Trump led. And the third question um, regarding treatment comes from Linda Bridgman-Smith, DUI Programs and Prevention Manager at San Diego County Behavioral Health Services and co-chair of the Prescription Drug Abuse Task Force. She states there are excellent treatment centers out there as well as fraud in the treatment industry. What are some of the solutions and is there a movement in creating industry standards that will elevate the entire treatment field? Boy, what a great question. And it is so desperately needed. Um, we did launch with HHS a treatment locator um, that anyone can Google and do um, treatment locator from HHS. And they can find state licensed facilities in their area. They can find them um, by all sorts of drop down choices. If you have insurance, if you don't have insurance, if there's a particular drug of choice, if you, language, um, you know, if you're is a, an issue and you want to you know, be in one that is bilingual, um, all sorts of opportunities there. But having that type um, of website we found was critical and it was something that we launched just before COVID because we want to make sure that people are going to treatment centers um, where there is some oversight. One of the concerns that we have is the, you know, the fee finding arrangement where you know, there are brokers out there that are getting a kickback for directing patients to treatment um, centers that might not be state licensed. And so that's one of the things that we're looking at. In the meantime, though, we're working hard with the industry to have them really um, create on their own a, if you will, a better uh, business bureau rating where they can go in and see that it has the seal of approval, see that they are following the latest um, medical advice in terms of providing treatment. For example, we know that medication um, exists to treat opioids, and we know that is the gold standard in terms of helping people. It doesn't mean that we're going to force it on individuals. Some people choose um, to you know, try to fight their addiction without MAT, and that works for some people. But we also want to make sure that it's available um, because we know that it works for so many people. Those types of things that are evidence-based, you know, to do that. So we want there to be, you know, a place where, you know, if a loved one is searching for, you know, a member of their family who needs help or an individual, you know, is trying to find help on their own, they have some reassurance that the facility that they are going to is a quality one. 
because right now there are some ones that really are not providing the best advice, the best treatment. Um, and so it, it's critical to do that. Right. And it's a, a vulnerable population that's susceptible to scams. So that's important. Yeah. You know, Dr. Love, I'm curious, you know, your thoughts, though. There are, you know, this is such a um, dynamic field. We have to be somewhat careful, you know, in making sure that we're not stifling research, though, into new treatment methods to make sure, you know, that, you know, there's so new you know, therapy out there that might help an individual. So it's a balancing act. I don't know, you know, I don't know your thoughts on it, but I, I think we do have to make sure that we're um, well, not isolating people. One of the projects that I started there, but, you know, with COVID things kind of fell through is was called NCATS, the National um, Consensus for Addiction Treatment Standards. And we were hoping that by creating a national voluntary standard, it would elevate the entire field and then, um, you know, weed away uh, the the you know, the fraud, um, but um, kind of modeled after the active shooter standards. If there's like, if there's an active shooter event, there are national standards uh, of how to, of, that everybody follows. Um, and if we created, we were actually working with the National Institute of Standards and Technology and hoping to get that uh, project going. So who knows, that's a, that was an idea that got some movement and, and we'll, we'll see, um, you know, if there's a future for that. Yeah, I'll continue to fight for that. Yeah. And then I have a question for you. Okay. Um, a subject that's dear to my heart um, about the X waiver, um, which is a, a barrier for, for physicians to prescribe a potentially life-saving medication. There's a movement out there called X the X waiver. Uh, get rid of it. We don't have, um, we don't need extra eight hours of education to prescribe insulin or covid treatment, why is there a barrier and, and you know, where are we in, in removing that for um, MAT treatment? Well, I would add one more thing. You, you don't need eight hours of treatment to prescribe opioids. Um, exactly. You can send patients home, you know, with a prescription to an opioid um, without the additional eight hours. I, you know, we, you and I have talked about this issue privately and publicly, it doesn't differ. I am very concerned that there are people out there, especially in some of our rural communities, um, who have a harder time finding a physician or a provider that has gone through eight hours. When you think about that, eight hours is asking someone to give up an entire day at, you know, at, um, at the very least, um, who it has the ability to prescribe some of the medication that we just talked about that really is the gold standard for helping people. Especially in times of COVID, um, I think one of the things I'm really concerned about is this X waiver because I do believe it represents a barrier to getting people the help that they need. If my primary care physician can write me a prescription for an opioid, I think that they have to have the ability to treat all of the patients in their waiting room when they come in. Obviously though, there are um, disadvantages and concerns with buprenorphine, for example. We know there is diversion that is taking place and we know that it can be abused, but that's true for almost every medication that you as a, as a physician um, or almost anyone who is a provider um, happens or can happen when you write a script. And so I think there have to, has to be some awareness um, 
provide it to prescribers, to physicians, to make sure that they understand the dangers um, and what signs to look out for. But I think that, um, that there's a big issue when you mandate eight hours of training, especially now, especially during COVID, um, when people are having a harder, harder time accessing the help that they need. We know that COVID has created despair among certain people who have an addiction. We know that the people who want help are having a harder time accessing it. We have seen overdoses increase. So I talked about a few minutes ago, the success that we had for the first time ever in the 29 years of um, overdoses going down. All of that has been erased during COVID. Now is the time to act. Now is the time to make sure that people can get the help that they need. We have to do so responsibly. We have to make sure um, that we prevent diversion, but we can't let perfect become the enemy of the good. And the good is getting help to people who need it and making sure that qualified physicians who understand all of the issues surrounding MAT um, have at their disposal, but we have to save lives. If my goal as set forth in the National Drug Control Strategy for the president says our only metric that matters is saving lives, we have to live it. And one of the ways to do it is to make sure that people can get the medication that they so desperately need. And so, um, you know, the idea of reshaping and reforming the X waiver is something that I, you know, we've been looking at very strongly um, and we're continuing to look at now. Um, and I really want to make sure that patients have this medication available to them by their regular healthcare provider. Well said. Um, you know, when people read the news and think about the White House, they think of a very stressful place. It's the, the you know, people getting fired and, you know, uh, you know, and people ask me that is like, it was very stressful. And I say, are you kidding? I'm an ER doctor. That's where the stress is. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I could do your, I know I could do your job. I couldn't handle that stress. So, but, but from your perspective, you're in the thick of it. You know, you, you get called into the office by the president um, or the chief of staff and someone's getting fired. Is, is, it, is it a stressful job? You know, of course it's stressful, um, but it's also incredibly meaningful. And it's an incredible honor to be trusted um, to have this job. Someone told me once that, you know, when you're coming in and out of the White House and you hold your badge up to the gate um, and, you know, you get access in, look out on the public sidewalk and, and see the people who are looking at you and wondering who you are and how you got a job inside the White House and how many people would love to have that job. There's so many deserving people um, who could be here and could do this job. I am grateful though the president chose me and uh, believed that I would bring that approach to people to make sure that we could save lives. And so it's an honor being here. And so it's an honor to have this much stress, um, but it's, it absolutely has been the pinnacle of my career. It's great. I love that. Honor to have that kind of stress. I'll, I'll bring that to my next shift. <laughs> <laughs> um, and finally, where do you see the future um, for the efforts on drugs and addiction and your personal future? 
Um, I'll go in reverse order. Um, my personal future, um, I hope to stay in this field. Um, this, I'm very passionate about this. You know, I have a family member that's in recovery um, and so many people I know, almost every family I know has been impacted one way or another. Um, and so um, there's a lot of prayers right now um, from me that I'm allowed to stay in this field and continue to work on help people. In, in terms of the future though, I have to say, I'm a little bit concerned. Um, I really am. I'm concerned about the rise in methamphetamine that's happening across our country where we don't have the MAT, the medication um, to help wean people off um, like we do with opioids. We have to make sure that we continue to stop the flow of drugs coming into our country, especially across the Southwest border. Just three or four days ago, CBP, um, the Department of Homeland Security released the latest numbers and there's been about a 200% increase over this time last year in the amount of fentanyl that was seized coming into the United States across the Southwest border. 250% increase. I mean, that's dramatic. We have to make sure that we continue those efforts there, that we continue to work on the methamphetamine. I'm very concerned about the direction that Mexico is headed right now. Um, and so they've taken some good steps um, and I hope we can continue to build upon them. In Colombia, the supply of drugs um, of cocaine, we have a president down there, uh, President Duque, who I've met with multiple times here in DC, as well as down in Colombia, who is absolutely committed to reducing the availability of cocaine. And we're investing in both of these countries in terms of infrastructure, alternative development, and making sure that people there have choices. In China, the President Trump um, took a very firm stand and got an agreement um, from China to stop sending fentanyl directly to the US. And while um, they have lived up to the letter of that, and we no longer see fentanyl coming directly in the mail from China like we used to, it's now shifted to other countries such as Mexico. I'm very concerned that um, we can't take our eye off that. I am hopeful though, that the, everyone will continue to understand the importance of stopping the supply and continuing the work that we have done on treatment here. Like I said, we have more folks getting treatment than ever before. We have more money going towards treatment than ever before. We have to make sure that we continue to break down the stigma that surrounds addiction, that people are willing to come forward and raise their hand to their employer, to their families, to their friends and say, I have an addiction, I need help. No different than any other disease, Everyone has to understand that this is an affliction, that this is a problem that impacts so many people that we just need to embrace them and say, go get the help you need. Your, the front door to the house is still gonna be open. Your job is still gonna be here and we love you. And we just want you to get the help that you need and then come back. That's what we wanna to continue to happen in the years ahead. Dr. Carroll, you are definitely the people's drug czar. I've seen you drop everything to speak to parents. Um, I, and you always, you're encouraging, you promote out-of-the-box solutions. You, you brought medical expertise. You have had DA take back, not just of drugs, but vaping products, promoting addiction medicine, uh, bringing parity to addiction treatment, as well as mental health and, and physical health. And you're just, I, I can, 
you know, say that you're a leader who is caring, compassionate, and has a heart of gold. Oh, you're so kind. I've been blessed with a great staff, blessed um, by your friendship and by having you as a colleague here, um, because that's what we're trying to do is we have to make sure this is personal for everyone who gets involved that this, you know, isn't just a job. It's not for you. It's not for me. And it's not for the people here at ONDCP. We just need to continue to march forward across the country. And as we close, do you have advice for our listeners? Um, is talk to your kids. Um, if you're an adult, make sure you talk to them. Be very open with them. You know, Dr. Love, when I was growing up, right, you know, parents never wanted to have the conversation about sex, um, you know, with the kids. And now parents are more and more comfortable understanding that's important to do. Um, they also, parents also need to understand that they need to have a tough conversation with their kids about the dangers of illicit drug use and how easily it can kill you. So parents need to have that conversation. Thankfully, more and more physicians are doing it as part of their screening process, especially with young people. Um, and so I think that that, you know, is something that listeners need to be aware of, that, you know, there are so many people out there willing to help. The other thing to tell parents, though, is to be hope helpful, is to be there when their child needs it, but to be there also when someone else needs the help. Um, when someone else in their community has an issue is to be there for them. That's what I've seen. That's what, as I've gone across the country, some of the things that have just inspired me so much is so many people, whether it's in the uh, faith community or just in the community group who will surround someone with the help that they need, the care that they need to allow someone to get treatment. And so it's continue to be involved, continue to be hopeful and helpful. And so I think we really will continue to see forward progress once we get past COVID. Thank you so, so much, Dr. Coyaro. It's really an honor to have you as a, our first episode at uh, High Truths and, um, and continuing the, the mission on safety and, and drugs and addiction. Well, thank you, Dr. Levin. Thank you for getting the message out to so many people and, and the work that you do across the board. Um, I hope you and all of your listeners have a great holiday that you're able to at least take a little bit of downtime um, to be with the ones that you love and reflect on the many blessings that we have. Thank you, Dr. Love. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts give you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsors. A sincere and warm thank you to CCR, Center for Community Research in San Diego, enhancing public health and safety through informed action. And the National Marijuana Initiative, raising awareness of the issues surrounding marijuana so citizens and policymakers can make well-informed decisions. NMI supports the high-intensity drug trafficking areas, HIDAs, as they work to carry out the National Drug Control Strategy. This has been High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts give you facts and answer your questions. We want to hear from you. Post a comment or email us about one thing you learned from this program. We thank you for listening and hope you will help our rating by giving us a five-star review. And subscribe so you won't miss any of our information-packed weekly shows. Visit our website, hightruths.com to submit a question, take a quiz, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Until next week, 
This is High Truths on Drugs and Addiction. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions, and I am your host, Dr. Onit Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more High Truths. Mm-hmm.